So we are in part four of this series, Seven Signs, and we're talking about building powerful faith. And we're following John as he, as he journeys with Jesus. And early on in the series, we talked about that the end of John's book, that he lays out his agenda. And part of his agenda is that he not only wants us, or he doesn't want us to be confused, but he also wants us to know that he, John, didn't only follow, or didn't just follow Jesus because of faith. He followed Jesus because of what he saw and what he heard. And in fact, what he saw and heard actually convinced him that Jesus was the Messiah. And once he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, he actually placed his faith in him as his Messiah. He believed based upon what he saw and what he heard, and he wants his audience in their mind's eye to see what he saw and through their mind's ear, so to speak, to hear what he heard. So that we would arrive at the same conclusion about Jesus that he did. And as an old man, an old man, somebody convinced him, so John, you're not going to live forever. You were right there in the action and you walked with Jesus and we need your account. So John, we believe, dictated his account as an old man and he organizes his, his account that we call the Gospel of John around these events that he says weren't just random acts, random miracles. They were actually signs that pointed to something. And they were evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And the reason that Jesus did miracles was not just because he cared about people, although he did, he was making a point about his own identity. And he wanted, John wanted future generations to know what he knew and to see what he saw. But, and this is important, but not simply so we would just know what Jesus did. He wanted his audience, he wanted us, he wants you to know who Jesus is, and that's key. Because recognizing who Jesus is, it reframes an entire life. It, it, it reframes our whole life. And so he tells us at the end of his gospel, and this is our theme scripture for this series, John 20, 31, and he says this. He says, let me tell you why I wrote what I wrote, why the story came out the way it did. That these particular things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have, have life. And that is the question of the people in the first, that the people in the first century were asking. It's perhaps the question that you're asking, maybe because you didn't get the answer that you wanted, you quit asking. And maybe you're not a church person anymore. Maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian anymore. And so the question is, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? And that's the tension that we're confronting today as we continue our journey. Because today we bump into the fourth sign in this series of signs that John wrote his whole account around. It's one of the most popular, but, or and one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. It is the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. So if you haven't been with us, let me catch you up. When last we left off with Jesus, he was in the south in the city of Jerusalem, and he and the disciples, they begin to journey north, maybe five, six, seven days, to the Sea of Galilee, and they get on a boat. So they go to the northernmost shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're about 100 miles away now from Jerusalem. And one of the reasons that they went is that John the Baptist had recently been killed. And Jesus needs a break. Maybe he's grieving because it was his cousin. But anyhow, he goes to this very, very remote part of the country. But in spite of that, word spreads about where Jesus is. And here's where the story picks up in John chapter 6, verse 2. It says, And a great crowd of people followed him. 
Because no matter where Jesus goes, no matter where he was, there was a crowd of people and they were always following him. And so it says a great crowd of people followed him because, because, look, nobody in the first century followed him because of faith. It wasn't because of that. It was because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And so they saw what they saw, what they heard is why they followed him. But what John saw and heard is why he ultimately believed. So imagine this, Jesus and the disciples, they've gone way out of their way to get kind of away from everything, a, a remote place, and here come thousands of people. And you know, even though maybe they've never seen him or heard him before, but since he's close and they've heard the stories, they wanna be close to him. They wanna see you know, this possible miracle worker or maybe Messiah. And maybe they'll see one of his miracles or, or maybe one of their friends will be healed. But anyway, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and it says that he sits down. So Jesus sits down with his disciples and then John, before he continues the story, he gives us a detail that's very important later. He says, no, by the way, you need to know that the Jewish Passover festival was near. And this was given to explain the crowd's response later in the story. And as you maybe know, Passover was a Jewish celebration and it celebrated God delivering the Israelites from Egypt hundreds of years before. And so God sent Moses, a prophet, and Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in the first century, Passover was this annual reminder to the Israelites that they needed another Moses. They needed another Joshua. They needed somebody to come along that could single-handedly galvanize the whole nations and throw the Romans all their, off their land is what they thought. After all, God promised them this land and as long as they were being occupied by somebody else, that would be a sign of God's judgment and they were ready to be done with that. So continuing in verse five, it says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, so you gotta picture this. He's sitting down, he's probably tired, he's in the middle of nowhere, and the disciples are like, ah, oh, really, here come the people again, and they're coming toward him. And Jesus knew why they were coming though. They wanted something from him. They were more enamored with the signs that Jesus was performing than they were with the actual person to whom the signs were pointing. Jesus. They were all enamored with the signs. They wanted another signs. They wanted another trick, another you know, event that they could go home and talk about. And they lost sight of the fact that there is a point to all of these signs. All the signs pointed to who Jesus was claiming to be. They wanted something from him. And so he turns and he, and he surprises one of his disciples. He turns to Philip and he says, Philip. And Philip is sitting, sitting there watching the crowd coming toward them. And he says, hey, Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? And you may have heard this story a lot if you've grown up in church, but we need to understand that nobody in this story was planning to feed anybody. I mean, this was never part of the conversation. This was just another crowd of people that wanted to get a piece of Jesus, wanted to be healed, wanted a story, and you know, wanted him to teach another mind-bending story that he, they wouldn't even understand until later. And so the disciples think they're getting a break, and then suddenly they're staring at these thousands of people converging on them. And Jesus has gone up on this mountainside, and he turns to Philip, and he says, hey, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? And so Philip Philip's probably like, feed these people. We don't feed people. We, we heal people. What are you talking about? Feed people, Jesus. And so later, Jesus would kind of give some background. And Jesus says this, he says, to test Philip because he already had in mind what he was going to do. So he wasn't really looking for a good answer. And Philip says in verse 7, 
He says, well, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of these people just to have a bite. In other words, to answer your question, Jesus, nowhere, there is nowhere that we could go in this remote place. And Philip was actually from this region, so Jesus might have been like, hey, Philip, you know where all the restaurants and the grocery stores are? Where can we find enough food to feed all these people? And Philip's answer was, nowhere, Jesus. And again, if you grew up in church like me, you know, I've seen the flannel graph version of this, the cartoon version, the storybook, heard sermons. I've heard this a thousand times. And so if we're not careful, this becomes so romanticized and all the rough edges are kind of shaped off. But I think there was some humor in this. I think there was some drama. And so in verse 8, Andrew, you know, so all the kids probably got there first because kids always get there first. And Andrew is seeing this kid and he's got some lunch. And he turns to one of the other disciples, you know, maybe. And Andrew Andrew says, hey, guys, hey, here's a kid with five small barley loaves, you know. And that was the food of poor people. So he has barley loaves and two small fish. And so, you know, how, how far are they going to go amongst all these people? It, had to, it probably had to be a joke. It's like, uh, where did we get food? Hey, kid, give me your lunch. We're going to feed 5,000 people with it. You know, I think this was kind of like, seriously? Jesus? But in verse 10, Jesus says, you know, to their shock, I'm sure, Jesus says, oh, well, hey, since we got some food, guys, have everybody sit down. We're going to feed them. <laughs> what? Just Jesus says, have everybody sit down. And it says there were plenty of grass in that place, so everybody sits down. And then John gives us another detail because of what's getting ready to happen. He says that there were 5,000 men in that place. There were about 5,000 men. He doesn't mention women or children, but 5,000 men was the equivalent of a a fully formed Roman legion. So John has given us a little foresight as to what is going to happen. And so Jesus probably smiles at the little boy, and he reaches down and maybe takes his food, and he stops... And, you know, I I don't want to rush through this because this is interesting. Probably only 12 guys know what's going on, maybe a few people down down front, and this little boy. And Jesus says, hey, let's bow our head and close our eyes and give thanks for lunch. And, And I'm sure they're not bowing their head and closing their eyes. They're probably looking at each other thinking, are you kidding me? What? I mean, it would be sort of like me, you know, coming to your, you know, to your house and your whole family or thousands of people and just say, hey, everybody, I bought everybody lunch. We're all going to have a bagel. You know, if I brought a bagel, let's stop in quick, real quick and thank God for a bagel. You wouldn't close your eyes. You'd be like, uh, what? Seriously? So Jesus, you know, Jesus wants to give thanks for this small amount of food. It probably looks ridiculous, maybe even embarrassing. And so Jesus is probably smiling at this point, I imagine. And one of the other gospel writers says that he took this bread and this fish and he hands it out to the disciples. Here's you a little bit. Here's you a little bit. Here's you a little bit. You know, here's this little bitty food. And so go serve everybody that was seated and give them as much as they wanted. And then he did the same with the fish. And then verse 12, it says, when they had all had enough to eat... He says to his disciples, it probably took hours to feed all these people. So he says to his disciples, hey guys, go ahead and gather up everything that's left over. We don't want anything to be wasted. And there are all kinds of stories about how, you know, people try to explain it away. It wasn't really a miracle. Everybody had lunch with them and they weren't sharing. Uh, And then once a little boy shared, everybody shared and everybody ate. I don't really think that that's what happened. I think we should go with the story of John who was actually there and who says that this was actually a sign.
So it says they gathered all the leftovers and they filled the baskets with, with all the leftover pieces of the barley loaves of those that had, had eaten. You see, these were Jewish people that did this. And under Moses, the ancestors had just enough bread every day when they were wandering in the wilderness. But this guy creates so much food, they have extra food to take home. It's even, they've got food left over. And so the most important question they were probably asking at this point, and the most important question that we could ask at this moment in the story, who is this? So in verse 14, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, which, which is absolutely crazy, they begin to murmur and whisper, surely this is true. It's true what we've heard. This is the prophet who was to come. And for just a moment, they shift their focus, and, and the reason this only lasted for a moment because they would get hungry again, but now they are full. And just for a moment, they're able to take their minds off their own appetite. They're able to take their minds off themselves and what they want from Jesus, and they're able to shift their focus from the sign to the person that the sign was, was pointing toward. And they realized, wow, this may be the person that we've been told about our whole lives. The, the one that Moses spoke about long ago that said another prophet will come. The one that Daniel spoke of, you know, the son of man. And for just a moment, they got it. But Jesus, he knew their recognition and their acknowledgement of it, of him was temporary because the time was not right. And so Jesus, knowing in his, in his heart that they intended to come and to, watch this, make him king by force, and, and this is what all the foreshadowing was about that I was talking about. Suddenly, there are 5,000 men, the equivalent of a single Roman legion, right after the John the Baptist has been killed. And if Moses could deliver them from Egypt, certainly the second prophet, this rabbi from, from Nazareth, could deliver them from the bondage that they had of the Romans. Imagine the scene, 5,000 men marching from the northern part of the city around the Sea of Galilee, maybe picking up momentum as they go to Jerusalem. By the time they leave Galilee, they might would have doubled in number. And by the time they were halfway to Jerusalem, you know, at the, at the edge in the border of Galilee, they may have tripled in number. And by the time they would get to the gate of Jerusalem, they may be the equivalent of four Roman legions led by Jesus. The whole country would come alive in revolution. Finally, a Messiah has come and the land was ours again. Finally, their prayers would be answered. And Jesus knew all of this. And as it turns out, he would in fact lead his disciples through the gates of Jerusalem during Passover. But it would be a different Passover, a different year. And of course, we know that he would go through those gates to be crucified. And Jesus knew their hearts, he knew their intent, and Jesus knew their motives. And their motive had very little to do with who he was. It had everything to do with what he could do for them. So he withdrew, the Bible says. He withdrew to a mountain by himself. But before he leaves the crowd and before he dismisses the crowd, he gets the 12 together and he puts them on a boat. And the imagery is kind of interesting. It says that he kind of manhandles them. He says, look, don't get any ideas, guys. And I'm sure they're thinking, wow, this is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We, we've been looking forward to this, this day, a revolt. What a perfect scene. We're going to march on Jerusalem. And Jesus would say to his disciples, get those ideas out of your head. He puts them in a boat, dismisses the crowd, and he goes to a lonely place and prays. 
because he was maybe concerned that even the disciples might get caught up in this excitement. And so again, as this story continues, Jesus would eventually join them on the other side of the lake. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, you know, he, he might think, finally, we might have some space or some time. But once again, the crowd finds, finds out where he's at and they head his way. And maybe the crowd now is even larger because of the miracle. But little do they know, he's about to thin the crowd. He's about to call them out. Not only call them out, but he's about to call some of us out as well. He's about to call me out, maybe you. And here's what I mean. Have you ever had this thought, or maybe you perhaps heard this, or heard a friend say this, or maybe you've just said this to yourself. Have you ever heard anything like this? You know what, I gave up on faith or on church because I wasn't getting anything out of it. You know, I used to do that, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to go, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to serve, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to tithe, but I wasn't giving, getting anything out of it. I used to sit on the front, but I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting anything out of it. And the point that Jesus is about to make is as long as it's about getting something out of and it, you and I, we still don't understand it. And so Jesus is on, another, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd finds him, and they show up. And in John 6, 25, it tells us that when they find him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, because when you're trying to navigate a relationship with somebody that you're trying to get something from, you're usually never direct, right? You know, there's this dance, and so the dance begins. When they find Jesus on the other side of the lake, they all finally gather, and somebody says, Rabbi, when did, when did you get here? Which is actually not their question, actually. And Jesus kind of just shakes his head and gets right to the point. He goes right to their point, and he says, look, you're not interested in when I got here, and you're only mildly curious as to how I got here. You, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, not because you saw the signs that I performed and made the connection of who I was, that you could stay connected to me because the signs pointed to me. You came looking for me because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You're here for the food. You missed the whole point of the sign. You thought the sign, the miracle, the provision was the point. And then he would lean into that crowd and he leans into me for sure and hopefully you feel like he leans into you. And he says to these men and women who, again, we can't even begin to imagine this moment because of all that we know takes place afterward. But he says to these people in verse 27, he says, look, do not work for in other words, do not live for, do not work for, do not live for, don't give your entire life to. Don't waste the hours of the day and the years of your life. Don't think only about, don't simply work for, he says, don't work for food that, that spoils, but work for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's saying, come on, look, don't you realize what I'm offering? It's way more than food and provision. Don't you understand what the sign is pointing to? Don't you recognize who I am? Do you not recognize that God has certified me? That he would say in the next verse, that he has certified me, he has authorized me to work on his behalf. Don't you realize that I'm speaking to you the words of God and that I'm doing the deeds of God? Don't you understand what is happening in this moment? 
And maybe he said to them, look, don't you understand, two, won't you understand 2,000 years from now, people are gonna tell this story. You're part of a story, a revolution, something way bigger than just retaking land or city from Rome. Don't you understand the gravity of what's happening here? All you people can think about is lunch. So they said to him in verse 30, so what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe? It's like, you know, we're okay, we're starting to believe, we're getting there, but just one more sign will do, Jesus. If you will just do one more sign, we'll believe in you. So what are you gonna do, Jesus? And this is where a lot of us, perhaps, are living. You know, well, I'll believe in God if only he would. I can have faith if only he would. I'll come back and get involved in church if only God would. I've got this little idea that I've come up with, and if God would do my idea, maybe I would, I would come back or I would believe. And so these people want to, expend, want to experience something beyond belief. Jesus, if you'll just do one more trick for us. You know, oh, hey, Jesus, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is thinking, good grief, are we get back to lunch? Like all you can think about is food? These men and women are standing. They're standing on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and the presence of the light of the whole world. The Word of God is there. God in a body is in front of them. And all they can think about is their own appetite, their own needs. They can't see past their own stomachs. And when you read the rest of John 6, some of you know the rest of the story, it says that on that particular day, John says that many decided to unfollow Jesus. They canceled him. They, you know, once they realized the magic show was over, they lost all interest in the magician. Once they realized that there was nothing more in it for them, they walked away. They had gotten everything that they had come for, and they were done. And maybe, maybe, because of the circumstances, they had an excuse. They didn't know what was going to happen. But you don't, and I don't. Because, you see, we are on the other side of the resurrection, where the man who claimed to be the light of the world actually proved it. The man, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, who looked in the eyes of these friends of his and said, I am. He said, look at me, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm telling you that I am the resurrection and the life personified. And, and of course, it would be difficult to believe, for them to believe that. But on the other side of the resurrection, we, believe, we have every reason in the world to believe that. So what about you? What about me? Are we just in this for the food, for what we need? Are we just in this Christian thing for just what we can get out of it? Now, certainly there are plenty of blessings, but are we in it for just what we can get out of him? If so, we have not come to grips with who we're dealing with. We haven't yet recognized with whom we are dealing with. You and I, we, we're, we're standing there in the presence of the light of the world trying to figure out how to get some silly temporary thing. And Jesus is saying, stop, stop, come on. Don't spend your whole life working for that. That'll come. Don't spend your whole life thinking about those things, what you need. We have been invited to follow. Watch this. I mean, I'll tell you this all the time, and I'll, I'll tell you as long as you listen. His followers... His first century followers ultimately shaped the civilization we live in. 
They shaped the world. And it wasn't the consumers of ministry that changed anything. It wasn't the, wow, did you see that people that changed thing? It was the people that finally got it and partnered with him. In other words, for us in the 21st century, this is no small thing for which we have been invited to participate in. Think about it. Every Christian in the United States, if all of us, just for two weeks, if every Christian for two weeks would just not ask God for anything, but would simply love the people around them the way that we've been asked to love them, demanded, mandated to, to love them, you know, everybody that we like, everybody that we hold things against, if we would all just stop asking and be as generous as God has asked us to be, compassionate as God has called us to be, if every father would just go home and be the father that he was called to be. Mother would just be the mother she is being called to be. Every son or, or daughter would just submit to the authority of their parents. If we would all submit to each other in the way that God through Christ has submitted to us, if we would just do these basic Christian things, then I'm telling you a difference would be felt in America. But we're walking around with the ruby red slippers. We don't need anything new. We have been given everything that pertains to godliness, life and godliness. And, and this handful of, you know, just oppressed Jewish people impacted the whole world. They, they survived the temple, the Roman Empire. And ultimately, it was the love of Jesus expressed through them that would, that would capture the whole world. Because they realized, hey, we already have everything that we need through Christ. The question is not, what do we get out of it? The question of first importance, the question that would change everything for you and I, no matter how long you pray, no matter how long you pray to the prayer, no matter how old you are, no matter how many prayers you pray, the question that changed everything is the question that Jesus was trying to get his audience to focus on. And the question is this, who do you believe that he is? And for some, he was nothing more than a magic rabbi. And they, and they, but a few of them would ultimately recognize him as God in disguise. And they responded. They responded the way that you respond when you realize that it was God in disguise. And, and quit asking, they quit asking, and they just surrendered and they followed him. And in the end, he gave them more than they could ever imagine. He gave them himself. So, Christians, God followers, I hope that we're not in this just for lunch. If so, we will miss the adventure. We will miss our Savior and what he actually wants to do in us and through us. You see, it is impossible to have an authentic, intimate relationship with somebody that you're always just trying to get something from. So we have to stop negotiating. We have to just say, look, God, I'm in. Yes, every morning I embrace through the words of the psalmist that says, instruct me and teach me in the ways that I am to go. Counsel me with your eye upon me. Heavenly Father, instruct me and teach me in the way that I should go. Counsel me with your eye upon me. I just wanna know that I'm following you. That's all I want. We gotta embrace the words of Paul when he says, just surrender the members of your body as a living sacrifice. That we just get up every morning and we say, God, here are my hands, my feet, my mind, my eyes, my resources, even my pain and my story. God, here's everything about me. 
I am making myself 100% available to you. I don't need anything. The only thing I would ask is just to make sure that I am in the center of your will. As generous as you want me to be, as available as you want me to be, as committed as you want me to be, as authentic as you want me to be, as forgiving and loving as you want me to be. God, I just want to know that I'm following with everything that I am. So let's not just be consumers of ministry. Let's be followers. Let's not just be com consumers of ministry. God, minister, minister, minister to me. Let's be partners in ministry with him. Let's leave his mark in this world. Because once again, this is no small thing that we have been invited to be a part of. We, we've been invited to be his followers, not, his not just consumers, but contributors to ministry, not just people there for the show and what we can get. Because see, his followers, his contributors to ministry then change the world once, the whole world, and perhaps we can change the world as well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much once again for this gospel that you inspired John to write to give us these seven signs, these seven steps, God, that we could become powerful Christians and not just consumers of ministry. It's more than just coming and, uh, or, or just sitting at home in a chair. It's more than you know just sending our youth to youth ministry. God, we are asking you to use us, that we would step up and that we would be your light, your love to this world that we would serve each other on teams and in outreach, that we would be generous with what you have given us in every area. God, I just pray right now that as we know who you are and as we live in the fullness of who you are and who you have made us to be, that although you have made the scriptures come alive to us and we receive them, that we are not only hearers of your word, but we are doers of your word as well. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.